Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest edition of Hollywood Swinging with Stephen Bishop and Jerry Hairston Jr. I am Stephen Bishop alongside my co-host, as always, the ever debonair and dapper Jerry Hairston Jr., a.k.a. The say J- the J Hay kid. I'm sorry, you're not Willie Mays. No, AKA, I'm not. AKA the legacy. <laughs> and you know, Jerry, I realize I have been slighting you for several episodes and not saying world champion Jerry Hairston Jr. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great, brother. I, you'd never slight me, Stephen. You know, the only time you slight me is on the golf course. Other than that, we're all good. We're all good. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, happy Father's Day. Uh, you know, yesterday was Father's Day as we're taping this. Happy Father's Day. I hope you enjoyed it with your kids. I did. You know, I, I had one of my kids with me uh, and my other daughter is playing in a tournament. So she had to go playing her softball tournament. My son's getting ready for another tournament. So it was good. Uh, but, you know, like my mother always says, every day is Mother's Day. And every day is Father's Day. You got to make sure you take advantage of those opportunities. So uh, I know you're a father and a great one at that. I hope you uh, spent time with your daughter. I did see that on the gram. You guys yeah. are spending time together. You, yeah, we did. We my my dad actually flew in for the day to spend time with me and his granddaughter. Uh, so we took him around and and showed him all the things that we do. We went to. Uh, her brother's baseball game, and then we went to the golf course and let him see her hit golf balls because he taught me how to play golf. Uh, then we, we went to the park so she could show him her prowess on the monkey bars. So nice. We love did all, love we hearing did, that. We did all things Charlie yesterday, so it was a good day. <laughs> um, Jerry, today we are honored to have an icon on our, on our podcast uh, you know, we've had quite a few guests where I've said that the uh, the guests needed no introduction. And this is no exception. This is one of those guys, Jerry, he's like Biggie. Okay. Now, 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 now you're <laughs> I gonna, love this. You're, you're gonna I want to know where you want to go with this. With this. Yes, he's please. like Biggie. He's like Biggie. As soon as you hear his voice, you know it's him. Yes. There, there is no mistake. And he, he needs no introduction. But... As I always say, since the introduction is so freaking impressive, I'm going to do it anyway. Jerry, our guest today was he grew up in Comac, New York and attended Comac High School South. In 1974, he graduated from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University, where he got his first radio experience as a freshman at WAER, a student run radio station. In the mid 80s, he went back, established a scholarship in his name at the Newhouse School, of which the very first recipient was another super announcer, Mike Tirico. Uh, that was in 1987. Uh, he began his professional career in 1973 at WSYR-TV and Radio in Syracuse. He called for the minor league Syracuse Blazers of the Eastern Hockey League. Uh, for many years, he hosted NBC's National Football League coverage and NBA coverage. He did play-by-play for the National Basketball Association and Major League Baseball coverage. Uh, he hosted NBC's coverage of the U.S. Open Golf Tournament from 2003 to 2014. He anchored NBC's pre- and post-game shows for NFL broadcasts and the pre- and post-game shows for numerous World Series and Major League Baseball All-Star games during the 80s the first being the 1982 World Series. In 1997, he finally got the opportunity to do play-by-play for a World Series from start to finish and ended up winning a Sports Emmy Award for Outstanding Sports Personality Play-by-Play. He served as NBC's lead play-by-play announcer for their NBA broadcast from 97 to 2000. 
Uh, in that time frame, he called three NBA finals, including the 1998 installment, which set an all-time ra- all ratings record for the NBA between the Bulls and the Jazz, our Bulls and the Jazz. You better believe uh, it. He has frontlined many Olympics, Jerry, for NBC, including Seoul in 88, Barcelona in 92, Atlanta in 96, Sydney in 2000, Salt Lake City in 2002, Athens in 2004, Torino in 2006, Beijing in 2008, Vancouver in 2010, London 2012, Sochi 2014, and Rio <laughs> in 2016. So let's, let's bring it all in perspective. He's, he's covered baseball, football, basketball, hockey, boxing, and horse racing. I think, th- I think that's it. There might be more. I'm sure there's ping pong somewhere along the line. He is a... Tw- <laughs> I can't believe I'm about to say this. Jerry, I'm impressed by your five Emmys. I'm impressed. I tell you every day that since I learned that, I'm impressed. He is a 29-time yes. Emmy winner. He is an eight-time National Sports Media Association National Sportscaster of the Year, a four-time American Sportscasters Association Sportscaster of the Year, and a class of 2012 National Sports Media Association Hall of Fame inductee, and a 2018 Broadcasting Hall of Fame inductee. Before you introduce him, you just mentioned he's like Biggie when you hear his voice. With all these accolades, you know who he reminds me of? Remember when Tiger Woods would, would start an event and they would introduce <laughs> Tiger Woods and yeah. they would introduce all his achievements and it's, it, it was over an hour almost. And then yeah. I remember Phil Mickelson said, oh, yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it. <laughs> yeah, we get so it. He's he, good. From the athletics boy, he's the Tiger Woods of his industry. Continue, Stephen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to introduce to you the one and only Bob Costas. Bob, how are you today? Welcome to Hollywood Swinging. I'm good, but I'm exhausted from listening to the very kind and unnecessary introduction. Hello to you and hello to Jerry. Stephen, you're unaware of this, but in the background, while you were rattling all that stuff off, your adorable daughter was prancing about, but keeping as quiet as a church mouse, recognizing that we're on the air. In some sense, so. and now she's being shy. I'm trying to call her. Uh, <laughs> try to call her over. Come here, Charlie. They're talking I saw her about you. back here. there. Uh, yeah, I didn't even see. I was I was so busy reading off that laundry list of things that you've accomplished. It's just, I mean, in I just uh, in in my lifetime, from you know, from a kid to there, oh, she, there, is. Yes. there she is. There she is. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> We've got an unforeseen uh, circumstance occurrence here. My daughter Charlie has joined the podcast. Wave, wave, <laughs> hi, everybody. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that among the four of us, she has the most star power. Clearly, easy. so it's all good. Oh, she absolutely does. It's crazy. It's everywhere she goes. She just lights up the room and she's, you know, yesterday was Father's Day. So she made my day very happy. But uh, right now she has the honor and she doesn't even understand of helping interview uh, the most iconic sports voice in my lifetime of what I was saying when she before she walked behind me is throughout my, you know, childhood and, and all through my life. When there was a major sports event, the voice behind it was yours. Well, you know, that's very nice. I was lucky enough uh, to land at NBC in a perfect storm of events, play-by-play stuff, hosting stuff, even stuff outside sports. Oh, hello, Charlie. (laughs) And And so, you know, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And if I'm somewhere on the list, but I always kind of I kind of shudder when someone says the most iconic, you know, you guys are in LA and they'll ever and always be only one Vin Scully, you know, I, I, and there's Al Michaels and there's Dick Enberg. And these days there's Jim Nance and there's Mike Tirico and Joe Buck. And if I'm on the list somewhere, that's all I could possibly ask for. That's very humble by, by you, Bob. And kind of to reiterate what uh, Steven said, you know, we did grow up watching you and we admired your broadcast. We admired your work in a variety of sports. When you were growing up, who was the guy that you admired? When you heard his voice and you saw him on TV, you yeah. said, you know what? I want to be just like him. Well, you know, mostly, as Stephen mentioned earlier, I grew up on Long Island. 
But for two years in the early 60s, when I was eight and nine years old, we lived in Redondo Beach, California. And I was one of those countless people with a transistor radio listening to Vin Scully called Dodger Games. So Scully was the guy who first made a real impression on me. Uh, subsequently, we moved back to New York and Red Barber is still doing Yankee games, even though he was most famous with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, as actually he was kind of, Vin Scully was Red's protege with the Dodgers. So Red Barber, then Mel Allen, uh, a lot of the very greatest broadcasters of that era were New York based. Marty Glickman did the Knicks and the Giants on the radio. Uh, Marv Albert was his protege. Um, Lindsey Nelson did Mets games. Later, Jim McKay and Jack Whitaker. I always liked the guys who were not just play-by-play -play men or even hosts, but could be essayists, people who had a literate touch and a sense of the world beyond the playing field. Uh, so I liked them as well. So those are among the people. And then when I got to St. Louis, almost right out of college, Jack Buck was the longtime voice of the Cardinals. And he had such a great combination of excitement, but also a droll sense of humor. And he was so connected to the city and the region and to the team. Uh, he was completely beloved. He was one of the greatest baseball broadcasters of all time. So those are among the influences. But I always felt you shouldn't copy anybody. You could be influenced by them. You could take some of what you see from them and kind of blend it into your own style. But if you copy someone else, you're just a pale imitation of the master. When I was doing that interview, uh, that uh, introduction, and I was, you know, thinking about saying what I said about you being the most iconic voice, I thought about guys like Al Michaels, and I thought about Vin Scully, mm -hmm. and I, I, I just the the width of your voice, the, 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 all of the different sports and all of the different uh, uh, main events and, and, mm -hmm. and, and Olympics and all that, it, it, for me, it puts you at the top. I mean, let's be honest. No. Al, Al Michaels is, a, is an iconic NFL voice. Vin Scully is the iconic baseball voice. Yep. But across the board, I mean, Bob Costas has, has always been there. Is there a favorite sport? Like, first of all, were you an athlete growing up? And second of all, do you have a, a, a sport that you wanted to be involved with? Is there a favorite sport that you mm -hmm. wanted to broadcast for and then happened to be able to do all the other ones? Or were you just, you know, always wanting to be an all around guy? Baseball has always been my favorite sport. Uh, basketball is my second favorite sport. I've enjoyed almost every assignment that I've had. And I think that especially hosting the Olympics, what I became was with Jim McKay, my predecessor hosting the Olympics uh, for ABC, he encouraged me to be, be a good generalist because the host of the Olympics doesn't have to be uh, an expert on every one of the sports that are under the Olympic umbrella. That's impossible, but you have to have a good overview and be able to create a narrative for the compelling stories that are out there. So I guess, you know, to your point, I probably did more different things, not just more different sports, but more different roles, host, play-by-play -play man, interviewer, uh, essayist, commentator, more different things, at least on a national level than most broadcasters have done. So, you know, if that's, if that's a small uh, plus next to my name, then that's a great thing, I guess. You know, you know, Bob, I want to take you back to, you know, a little bit of my childhood. I grew up in Chicago mm -hmm. and uh, baseball was my first love. But growing up in Chicago, basketball came a huge part of my life. I grew up in Jordan's time, in Jordan's yeah. heyday, the Bulls. And I just remember, you know, seeing and hearing your passion for both sports. I, I knew yeah. your love affair of basketball, your love affair of baseball. And I just remember the 93 All-Star game it just resonates with me. And I remember you introducing the 93 all-star all game, you're doing it and, and talking about, you know, Mickey Mantle and all the greats. And then in today's era, you have Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Bonds, mm -hmm. Kirby Puckett, Cal Ripken Jr. Was, was that one of the more special all-star games that, 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 that home run derby in Camden Yards with Ken Griffey Jr. And that all-star yeah. game that 1993 with Michael Jordan playing in the celebrity game as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I was so lucky to intersect, with sports at a time where I was just so connected to it naturally. So obviously you try to do your homework and you, you know, some things that maybe the audience doesn't know, but I think that 
a huge portion of the audience felt the same way about those games and events as I did. So I was doing it partly on professionalism, but also largely on just my own feeling. Like I'd want to be there as a fan. And I think that for, you know, 25 years or so, that was completely true. I was organically connected to almost everything I did. And then I hope I brought some, you know, professional skill to it. But it's it's a hard thing to describe, but people know it when they see it. They know it or, or hear it. They know when the person really wants to be there, when the person feels somewhat the same as they do as, as a fan. And when you mentioned, you know, growing up in Chicago, I've been around long enough. I call games that your dad played in for the White yep. Sox. And I call games that you played in for the <laughs> Orioles or, or, or whatever. Uh, I don't think I'll be around long enough if you have a son uh, to be calling games that he plays in. By then, by then I'll be out. Well, my son is 17, and I have a nephew Ooh. who's 17 as well. They both have a chance. So uh, you might be around. Yet, if I can hang on for maybe three, four more years, <laughs> and if they're precociously talented enough, you know, maybe, maybe. You know, when Stephen said earlier, and, and sometimes I'll do this, you know, if I do a speaking engagement or something, I'll mention this stuff. Uh, when people say, this person needs no introduction. In fact, David Letterman has an interview show now on Netflix called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. Uh, and I will then point out as the first thing I say, uh, you ought to walk around with me sometime for a few days and hear the people who say, hey, good to see you, Mr. Musburger. Oh. How you doing, Mr. Nance? Because they just get confused. You know, yeah. or they'll, they'll say to me, hey, are you doing the Stanley Cup? I've never done the Stanley oh. Cup. But they'll just see me, you know. Or even now, my last Olympics was 2016 uh, in Rio. Uh, are you doing the Olympics? Uh, no, no, I haven't done it for a while. Haven't you been watching my Tariko? But, you know, you can't expect people to keep up with every last thing. So, But here's here's the best one. Muhammad Ali's memorial service in 2016 in Louisville. It was as if a head of state had died. Uh, the funeral procession goes through the streets of Louisville, and there are thousands of people lining the streets just to get a look at the funeral procession. Uh, the memorial service had to be held in the arena where the Louisville Cardinals played basketball. And so there was a large group of just people, the general public up in those seats. And then there were chairs on the floor of the arena for guests who had been invited by Muhammad's family. And because of the, the congestion and the traffic, the service didn't start on time. So there were groups of us, little clusters, just standing around in conversation until the service got underway. And by the way, President Clinton was one of the eulogists, Brian Gumbel, Billy Crystal was off the charts, great eulogizing his friend Muhammad Ali. So uh, groups of us are hanging around. And in walks Don King. And Don King is in full Don King regalia. The hair is going on. He's got the American flag jean jacket. He's waving his little American flag. And he approaches a small group of us. And somehow he feels as if he has to provide some sort of little scouting report on each person. So he walks up, he's like, Mike Tyson, once the most feared man in the ring, Coach Pat Riley, straight off the pages of GQ, Sugar Ray Leonard, not a mark upon him, as beautiful as a child, Katie Couric, America's sweetheart. And then he turns to me and he goes, Michael J. Fox. Oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, if I need no introduction, maybe most of the time, but not all the time. Incredible. That's Incredible. amazing. Hey, you know, it's it's stories like that, that, that I remember every time there was something big, you would have a backstory to it. You, you provided almost poetry leading up to and do and during the event. And, and it, it, it made me really understand what they meant when they said, how can you not be romantic about baseball or, mm -hmm. you know, or sports in general, because you yeah. always had such a deep understanding of the human condition and how it related to sports and, and, and always made us see the vision what before and, and during and after we, we watched the event. Uh, 
was there was there a method to that? Did you initially set out to be that sort of narrator behind sports or was it something that you kind of just stumbled upon and realized that it was a huge asset for you? Well, I found myself, as I said before, right place, right time. And the production people and the prevailing sensibility at NBC in that era, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, just lent itself to that. And YouTube now just tosses up stuff randomly. And some of it, I don't even remember that I did it. But I've seen a lot of those opens for NBA finals games or big baseball games, like Jerry said, all-star game, LCSs, World Series. And it was always the intention at NBC to do an opening um, essay of some kind with great production value but not bells and whistles. Like a lot of stuff you see now, yeah. just quick camera cuts. Gimmicks. And, yeah, it's like, it's like all kinds of like stuff going by. No, no, no. Tell a story. Yes, use the visuals to, to support the story, but it doesn't have to be a bunch of bells and whistles. Um, and so what we would try to do is capture not just the theater and drama, but what's the narrative? If you haven't followed the World Series and now it's game seven, what's the, what's the narrative? If you haven't followed the NBA until the finals, what's the narrative of this? What's what's the drama of it? What's the framing of it? So we wanted to get to the facts, but also to get to the drama and theater of it and have people maybe have some goosebumps like, hey, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to sit down and and watch this because I always thought that sports casting is a hybrid. It's drama and theater and entertainment. But it also should have an element of journalism. You're there to document an event. And sometimes those events are really significant. Like Michael Jordan's last game with the Bulls in 98, which I was lucky enough to call. And I'm thinking the reason it's still the highest rated game in NBA history has much more to do with Michael Jordan than it has to do with me. But but in any case, that was more than just a big basketball game because Michael Jordan was so iconic that we knew after he hit that last shot, in the in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this isn't just on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It's on the cover of Time and Newsweek. It isn't yeah. just in the sports section. It's on the front page of the L.A. Times and the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. And so you have to treat it that way. Um, they say that broadcasting or even a good newspaper story is the first draft of history. That's not always true with sports. It's not always that significant. But sometimes it is. And you got to give it your best shot to have it be a credible first draft of history. And that's what I tried to do. And, and Bob, you did that very successfully. You don't talk about stories. Vin Scully, he did that at baseball games. You hear his stories during the game. And yeah. He always had that perfect drama. And you obviously did that with other sports. And I go back to that 1998 game. You know, you talking, telling us that story when Jordan stole the ball from Hall of Famer Carl Malone. You walked us through it. 17 seconds. I can hear, still hear your voice. 17 seconds. 17 seconds for title number six or game seven. And then I, we could hear it. All of us could hear it right now. Jordan open Chicago with the lead. And then after he made that shot, you really brought it home. You're talking about that could be the last shot he ever takes as Chicago Bull. Can you kind of walk us through that moment? Because that was the last time he yeah. took the shot for the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, I think I said we'll ever take in the NBA because I had no thought that he would ever play for any team other than the Bulls. It wasn't certain, but you know, Phil Jackson, long before ESPN 20 plus years later, did the great series, The Last Dance. He had actually labeled that season The Last Dance. So you have to be aware of what the potential storylines are. You don't force anything in. You go where the game takes you. But we had covered lots of Bulls games on NBC that entire season. And I was on every Bulls broadcast during the playoffs. Uh, we did the Eastern Conference. Doug Collins, Isaiah Thomas, and I did the Eastern Conference. And then we joined, the Jazz joined uh, our broadcast when we got to the finals. So every last aspect of what Michael Jordan and the Bulls were up to that year, we'd been part of, we'd been documenting it. So you come into something like, not just game six, but game five, because they were up three games to one. And I didn't remember this until I watched the last dance documentary. I said, as we came on the air for game five, if this is the last dance, it might as well be on their dance floor. So I was aware and the whole country 
was aware of what the storyline was. So now we're in Utah for game six. It's a terrific game. It's a one-point game right, right down to the end. And when Jordan makes the shot, you know, if Ron Harper or somebody else had made the shot that puts them in front, it's a great thing. They win the series, but the theater is not the same. The place and the public imagination is not the same. So, you know, I had all that information. And then you hope that you have the wherewithal to say something that will hold up when they play it back 20 years later. They're you still know, playing it now. You know, Jerry, uh, in our introduction, I often call you the legacy because your grandfather played in the Negro Leagues, your father played in the big leagues, your brother played in the big leagues. Mr. Costas also has a bit of a legacy going on in the sports, in the sports uh, broadcasting world. His two kids also, also are Emmy winners. Yeah, well, that's a Wikipedia thing. My daughter is uh, a school teacher, taught ninth grade English literature for a long time, and now teaches sixth graders uh, in New York. But she did because she wanted to be able to say, like her brother, that she worked with her dad. And so she worked on the news desk in 2012 at the London Olympics. And what happens when an overall production wins something, like the coverage of the Olympics wins something, yes. and the network is generous enough to say, everybody gets an Emmy. So everybody <laughs> this side of the guy who brings you coffee gets an Emmy. And she did a good job, and so she has an Emmy. But well, Keith, has been, Keith has been with the Major League Baseball Network uh, uh, for a very long time, almost since its inception. Um, and he's now an associate producer there and actually produces some games. He's in Houston tonight to do the Mets and the Astros, which is an MLB Network uh, showcase game. And then I'll be working with him on Thursday uh, for Mariners-Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And to tie all of this together, but I'd forgotten uh, to mention your dad, uh, your grandfather out there, being in the Negro Leagues. If you haven't seen it yet, you'll want to see a documentary called The League which Keith and I saw at the Tribeca Film Festival about a week ago. Uh, and I've seen a number of things about the Negro Leagues, but this is, it's right up there with the best, but what distinguishes it is it's the most comprehensive that, mm. that I've seen. Um, and I would encourage people who have any interest in this subject, if you're anywhere near Kansas City, got to go to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, which is fabulous, beyond great. And this particular documentary, The League, is really cool. I have yet to see it. I'm going to definitely see it. I know Bob Kendrick does an incredible job there yeah. in Kansas City with the Negro League Museum. Uh, I have to see that. I have yet to see the league. You know, Bob Kendrick is almost the descendant of Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill was the single greatest storyteller about baseball ever. You know, he was he was the star of Ken Burns' baseball documentary, that whole uh, episode they devoted to the Negro Leagues called Shadow Ball. That's when he became not a Kansas City treasure, but a national treasure. So mm -hmm. if there's a 1A to Bucks 1, that's Bob Kendrick with that storytelling style and that grasp and appreciation of the vast history of it. He, he took the baton and he's doing a great job taking it forward. Hey, two things I want to say in defense yeah. of in defense of your daughter's Emmy. Uh, you've been around baseball long enough to have heard the saying, hey, there's no pictures in the scorebook. Right. Okay, so so I don't care how she got it. She's got a she's got Every, something holding the globe up there like that on her mantle somewhere. Hey, everybody gets a ring. You win the World Series, everybody gets a you, ring. You right? get a I, ring. I got and, a ring. I I was on that 09 Yankees team. I was carried by Derek Jeter, Alex Rodriguez, uh, Mariana Rivera, Cece Sabathia. So I was the the 25th man basically. I got a ring. You know, don't you love it now? And it's all cool. People, the, the way this is written now, in almost every place you see any reference to a championship team they'll say robert ory won five rings well he was on teams that won five championships and he was a, an, a big contributor because he made all those clutch late shots you could say michael jordan won six rings you know? yeah. but like, just because a guy's on a team yeah you know? it's like steve kerr steve kerr's what has he won red, red my Steve um, Kerr's won eight as a player and as a coach. I'm trying to – well, it's up there. It's a lot of rings. Yeah. It's a lot of rings. And I think Robert Ory won seven. because you're, you're, you're right. Yeah, I think Robert Ory was because we're forgetting, I think he won one with the Spurs, I believe, At with Tim one. Duncan. 
at, yeah, least, at one. least once. So it, it is amazing. You're right. I mean, the superstars are the ones who obviously. Yeah. Well, but but like I said, but I'm wait, not a superstar, but, so I'm glad that I, I was right. able to contribute but, but, a little bit. But yeah, the stars Jerry, get the glory. Jerry, just like when you, you know, when you may have made an error uh, in, in, in the ninth inning to cost, you know, cost the team the game, your, your manager will come over to you in the locker room and he'll say, hey, listen, that's not what lost us the game. We had multiple opportunities to score much, many more runs in the game that could have put us way over the, the score of that one run that came in on your air. Don't worry about it. Anybody that contributed throughout the season, yeah. throughout the playoffs, who scored That's any true. baskets, who got any steals or, or block shots, they won rings because without maybe that block shot, the of other course. team goes on a run. You know, I will say this: I was, I, I maybe sold myself a little short because I wasn't the twenty fifth. I was the first guy off the bench, so I was more like the sixth man. I was a sixth man on that Yankees team because it's hard to, hard to break yeah. the lineup with Alex Rodriguez, Robinson Cano, Jeet, and Mark Teixeira. That infield was pretty good. <laughs> pretty solid. Pretty solid. Yeah, I mean everybody everybody contributes. I just find it amusing when yes. you routinely now see so and so won. X number, but so-and-so was on a team. Even Derek Jeter yes. didn't individually win. Muhammad right. Ali won the heavyweight championship. Right. Now the guy Michael that Phelps and Usain Bolt won their Olympic gold medals. Here's the guy yes. that here's the guy that didn't win win the ring. The guy that got traded like two weeks before and, <laughs> and, and ended up on the team when they won the championship. And they're like, well, here, yeah, here, you have a ring. Or, or got well, traded away. Or got, or traded, got away traded away in the beginning of the season. <laughs> he got to be traded away in the beginning of the season and the team wins, right, Yeah, Jerry? but the, the, boys, the boys have a meeting and they cut him in, you know? Yes. They give, give him a ring and, and if they're generous, you know more about this because you've been in these meetings. The player if they're share. generous, sometimes guys will go, hey, give the guy a full share. And other yes. times guys will be there like with a calculator. Well, he played 58 games. What percentage of 162 is that, Right. You're exactly right. They'll do the percentage, but you know what? Normally, guys are a little bit more generous. Uh, but you're be. right. If let's say this guy was wasn't beloved in that clubhouse and he got traded away because he was a problem, then I guarantee you he doesn't get a full share. Uh, there's justice in that. Yes. Yes. Well, Bob, you know we were talking about certain times and you know taking. You used to you taking me back to my childhood and Stephen's childhood. I just remember, you know, I, I played basketball as well, and I just remember a certain date in June of 1994. We had just got done playing a summer league basketball game early. We go to uh, one of my buddies' house, Max Hansen's house. All our basketball players mm -hmm. going to be there. Uh, is going to have a party. Going to watch the the NBA finals between the the, the New York Knicks and the Houston Houston um, uh, Rockets. And I just remember chaos ensued and we were on the TV yeah. glued to the TV because there was the right man who could break everything down with chaos going on. I'm talking about the OJ Simpson chase happening yeah. during the NBA finals. You know, I think the person that had the most responsibility there was Dick Ebersol, the president of NBC sports, because every other network went full to that slow speed Bronco chase on the 405 for hours upon hours with the helicopter shots. And you had the, the audio of him talking to the detectives who were trying to convince him to put the gun down and et cetera, et cetera. But we had not just a basketball game, an NBA finals game going on from Madison Square Garden. So Dick had to decide how we're going to thread that needle. And every time there was an appropriate break, certainly at halftime, throughout the pregame show, then I would transition it between Marv Albert is calling the game and Tom Brokaw is down the street at 30 Rock uh, in the news studio. Um, and Tom would take care of updating people. And then there were times, almost bizarrely, when we'd have a split screen where you'd see the Bronco because who knew what was going to happen? You didn't, you didn't know. We know now in retrospect, but you didn't know if tragically he would commit suicide. A.C. Cowling said he had a gun to his head. Or if the if the car would pull off the road for some reason, or once he got to his home in Brentwood, would he give up peacefully, which he did? Or could there be an incident at that point in the driveway? Nobody knew that as it was playing out. And you didn't want, no matter what it was, if something consequential happened, you didn't want to meet it, uh, miss it rather. But uh, from a sports standpoint, you got Elijah Wan and Ewing, the series is tied 2-2. That's consequential in its own right. And certainly people, especially in New York and Houston, are interested in that. So we had to kind of walk that 
that tightrope. And it was my job to just kind of transition between the two and to strike the appropriate tone. You know, Marv is appropriately capturing the excitement in the building. Tom is appropriately much more sober because, as he put it, a Shakespearean tragedy is playing itself out. And I've got to split the difference between those two things uh, and try to strike the proper tone. Very often, what works on television or radio is the content is important, but the tone is mm -hmm. just as important. People often remember the tone as much as they remember the specific content. So I hope I hit the right tone that way. You certainly did. And I just remember learning, you know, from you guys, because that was something that we've never seen before. You know, yeah. and obviously it was something we always talk about. There's nothing like live TV. But, well, that was incredibly something was happening Whoa. that you mentioned. It was life or death. It was a life or death situation. And you, you guys captured it perfectly. Hey, there's one one last thing. I know you got to get out of here and, we, you know, we're honored to have you this long. But Jerry and I are both Chicago kids. And mm -hmm. I, I, I always wonder when things like this happen and the guy that's talking about it is done talking about it. The Ryan Sandberg game. Oh, yeah. I want to know, first of all, describe it. And mm -hmm. then what was it like driving home after making that do you believe it call did you know then did you were you driving home and you're like wow that might be that wow that was amazing that might actually go down as one of the better calls in history there you know i think like a, like a do you do you believe in miracles yeah. type <laughs> well, call here's, you know? here's, the, here's the thing about that was that a great game of course it was a great game but the reason why it still resonates the reason why there have been i think three different documentaries about it is because of the context. It's Wrigley Field, before there were lights, a beautiful Saturday afternoon. They're not playing just any team. They're playing their traditional rival, the Cardinals. You see a lot of red shirts in the stands at Wrigley, just like you see a lot of Cub Blue at Bush Stadium. So it's a perfect setting. But it's also 1984, and it's the Saturday game of the week. And younger people just wouldn't understand what that meant. When now you can stream any game, you can buy a package if you're a Brewers fan and you live in Tacoma and you want to see every Brewers game, no problem with that. There's highlights everywhere. There's quick pitch on the MLB network. Back then, if you lived in Billings, Montana, and you wanted to see Fernando Valenzuela face Johnny Bench, the game of the week on Saturday was your opportunity to see that. That game meant something different than it means now. Does Fox do a game every Saturday? And is it well presented now with Joe Davis and John Smoltz and before that Joe Buck? Yeah, but it's just one of a zillion games. It doesn't have the same cachet as the game of the week had then. And so you had the full force of NBC. NBC knew how to present baseball. You had Vin Scully and Joe Garagiola on one game and me and Tony Kubek on the other. And there goes Charlie. She wants to hear about the Sandberg game. And so now this game plays out. This incredible game plays out. Uh, the Cubs are down nine to three. They come back and it's nine to eight. Bottom of the ninth, Bruce Souter, Hall of Fame closer, is on the mound for the Cardinals. They use relievers differently then. I think he came in in the seventh inning and pitched three and a third or something like that. So up comes Sandberg, homers to tie the game nine nine. Now it's crazy enough. You go to the tenth. Willie McGee doubles home a run. Now he's hit for the cycle. He's a footnote. In any other game, it's like he's the headline. All right. So now the, the Cardinals are up 11 to 9. And two out, nobody on. Bob Dernier takes a really close 3 2 pitch for ball four, draws the walk. Up comes Sandberg again. Suter still pitching. And he homers to almost the same spot. It's almost like the same fan could have caught both in the bleachers. So you got this whole setting and the whole country is watching. It's a truly national game. When people didn't have a, a cell phones and a zillion things to distract them, if you were a baseball fan, you're locked in on that. The Saturday afternoon baseball game of the week on NBC often got ratings as high as hit primetime television shows of that era and much larger than shows that are considered hits now. You get a rating of 10 for a regular yeah. season game. So, and then, you know, then they, the Cubs win the game 12 to 11. It's the only other regular season game I can think of that has a name is the Pine Tar game, the George Brett Pine Tar game. 
um, which was just the year before, I think. But the uh, you say the Sandberg game to any baseball fan in Chicago, they know what you're talking about. Sandberg says it's the signature game of his career. It's what marked him as the MVP for that year, and he did go on to win the MVP. It's what it's the game of a great Hall of Fame career, and I think I said something like, after the second homers, he's going in the dugout. The movie The Natural had just come out like a month or two before. And I said, maybe this is the real Roy Hobbs that we're looking at right here. You know, so have there been other games since then that were as wild and as crazy and as exciting? Of course there have been. In fact, I've called a few of them on the MLB network, but they didn't have that context. And that context, except in the postseason, can never be recaptured again. But when you were driving home... (laughs) <laughs> when you were driving home, did you think to yourself, wow, you know, because it's obviously off, you know, it's improv yeah. and it's off the cuff. And you're like, wow, Bob, that that was good, <laughs> man. Good job. That, that might that might go down as one of the greatest calls in history. Does that ever s- sink in with you? Like when you're when you have the time to reflect on what you've just said and, and how your voice uh laid the color for what we were, we were watching you as know? fans did? You know, Stephen, to be perfectly honest, um, I thought it was okay. I was I was oh, really feeling wow. an afterglow. I was really feeling an afterglow from just I was 32 years old. I looked like I was 15. And I, you know, I just felt the afterglow of being part of one of the greatest experiences I'd ever had as as a baseball fan. That's what I wasn't thinking. And you know, you couldn't get the the video immediately. There weren't highlight shows. I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it till years later. Um, yeah, I guess it, I guess it holds up okay. And every time I see Ryan Sandberg, usually it's at the Hall of Fame now in Cooperstown. That's the first thing he says. You know, like I'm his guy. <laughs> you, know, I was just, you should hear Harry Carey's call though on radio because Harry was on radio because when the network came in, then WGN was sidelined for that game, so he moves over to radio and he's like losing his mind. So Cub fans love that because they like that. Passion. He's like everybody going bananas. Holy cow! Everyone, everyone's nuts. Everyone's bananas. You know. So that was cool. If you were a Chicago fan living in Chicago, there's a kind of a different approach for a network broadcast. But I guess they both work on their own terms. Well, I grew up a White Sox fan, but I did watch that game because it was the Saturday game of the week. And I remember my dad playing in that era. And that was huge for the players because it was their opportunity to be on a national stage. Because as you mentioned, Bob, the ratings were always through the roof. Listen, we are so grateful for you, for you taking the time out of your busy schedule. We want to make sure we get you out of here. Thank you so much. Uh, again, you're welcome. Two, two quick thoughts uh, to back up what you just said. When the players would see us on Friday at the batting cage on the Friday night game before the Saturday game or on Saturday walking around the clubhouse, they'd go, oh, game of the world. If we're, <laughs> we're the game of the world tomorrow. I must have heard that a hundred times. And I'm sure Vin and Joe heard it as well. We're the game of the world. It just it just meant something different. Uh, and earlier, I wasn't dodging the question. Uh, right off the bat, Stephen asked, uh, was I an athlete? And here's the answer. Because people, I play along, you know, you're five foot seven, which I used to be when I was five, six and five eighths. I rounded it up, honestly, to five, seven. Now, you know, you get a little older. I've fallen beneath five, six and a half. So now, got to be honest, I'm five, six. But either way, you're standing next to Shaquille O'Neal like this, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a funny visual and I get it. So so I play along. But here's here's how good or bad I was. I could really shoot a basketball if no one was guarding me. That was the problem. That's why I was cut from my high school team. But I could shoot better than anybody if we were just standing there shooting free throws. But I wasn't that much of a player, plus I couldn't guard anybody (laughs) all that well. Um, Am I allowed to tell another story? Absolutely. We're on your time. Yes. Just so we're talking about the basketball part. In Chicago, I think in the 93 final against Phoenix, We're staying at the Fairmont Hotel in Chicago, which has an incredible gym, and it has a full-court basketball thing, probably 60 feet, not 94 feet, but full court with a scoreboard and the whole thing. So we decide we're going to have a game, the production crew against the talent. 
So, you know, Doug Collins, I know Doug Collins wasn't there yet. I forget who was there. Mike Fratello was there. Anyway, so Andy Rosenberg was a great director, track and field at the Olympics, basketball and baseball for NBC. Andy was about my size. I was killing him. Okay. I could, I could hit a turnaround over this guy. I was killing him. Okay. And Magic Johnson walks in. We were playing to 50. And my team is ahead like 40 to 25. Okay. He walks, Magic Johnson walks in. Now he's only a couple of years removed from playing. He walks in, he goes, Who's got 25? He goes, I'm, I'm with them. They won like 50 to 44. I was <laughs> just like he took took over the whole the whole thing. All right. And somehow in this game, I have no idea how. Because even if we were playing horse, if you made a reverse layup, I've got an H. I can't make a reverse layup. And somehow in this game, I've got the ball and Magic jumps out to guard. He's like a condor. He's like, I've never seen anything like this. You know, I don't play against that caliber of competition. You know, at that time, I'm like 40 years old, so I can still move a little bit. And I went under his arm and under the bat, and I, I made a reverse layup. I couldn't make a reverse layup unguarded. Made the reverse layup. Okay, now, we mentioned Keith Costas. He always went to me once with, with me when school was out. So now it's June, school's out, so he's hanging around. You know, the players knew who he was. Michael Jordan knew his name. So now this game the next night, and Magic is standing on the floor before the game, and I bring Keith over. He's seven years old. I said, Magic, this is my son, Keith Costas. And Magic goes, your dad can really shoot. Oh, my gosh. That's like the highlight of my of my sports life. Now, baseball-wise, baseball uh, the baseball coach actually played with a guy who pitched briefly in the major leagues in the 70s, a guy named Don DeMola, pitched for the Expos for like three years. He was on my high school team. So I was trying to make the team as the backup second baseman, but I got cut, and the – and I deserve to get cut. And the coach says to me, Costas, I don't think you can hit your weight. And I don't think you weigh 130, which might have been true at the time. He goes, you're not bad with the glove. And again, I can't, can't keep you on the team. And he actually said, you ever think about broadcasting? And I'm like 16 years old. I go, yeah, that's pretty much all I think about. He goes, good. Try that. Wow. So, wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. Story. So, so the answer, Stephen, to your question is, um, not good enough to be anything near a star athlete, not even good enough to make uh, the high school team, but certainly good enough that even now, if we went out and started throwing a baseball around, you wouldn't think I'd never thrown a baseball or if we shot baskets or, you know, if we played catch with a football, I could throw a spiral at 25 yards. I just couldn't throw it any longer than that. You know, so not not the last guy you'd pick in a pickup game, not the kid in right field picking four leaf clovers, but also the kid who knew that if I was ever going to get into a ballpark or an arena without paying for a ticket, it would be holding a mic, not holding a bat or a basketball. Well, so you were an athlete, just literally uh, one of the guys that were hamstrung by size. I mean, if the fact that you're, if the magic is telling your kid he can really shoot and your coach is saying, hey, you're pretty good with the glove, you know, maybe the, the size issue cost you to be able to, you know, your line drives are not able to get up over the, the infielder's head. You, know, you, you know, Jose Altuve is 5'6". He's got talent in that 5'6 body. Spud Webb was 5'6", and he could dunk. So I'm not going to put it all off to being 5'6", but then there's... The and there's this, and we'll let you guys go because there's no other time to tell these stories. I hit a triple of Bob Gibson in a fantasy game in 1984. Did Same he throw summer. at you? Did he throw at you after that? No, there's Steve, you've asked the right question. Here's the deal, right? He's maybe 50 years old, still throwing in the 80s, probably. He was Joe Torrey's pitching coach with Atlanta, and it's a game at the old Bush Stadium, and it's old Cardinals. And the Cardinals had played the Braves, so he's there to play. And, you know, like um, Lou Brock is in left field, Kurt Flood's in center field, um, Mike Shannon's at third base, et cetera. It's all these old Cardinals against these campers. And it was a Saturday game of the week. And the guy running the camp was Randy Hundley. You'll remember him, Jerry's oh, yeah. old coach. Absolutely. Running the camp. So he comes up to the booth and he says to me and Tony Kubek, why don't you guys play as ringers? Tony, you play for the Cardinals, and Bob, you play for the campers. Okay, so Gibson is like a real competitor, even with these campers, right? So he's blowing everybody away. So I come up 
two quick strikes. My swing starts as I'm hearing the pop in the catcher's glove. Um, and now somehow, pitch like out over the plate, maybe thigh high, using aluminum bats. The campers were allowed to use aluminum bats. I hit a line drive over Dal Maxfield's head at shortstop. And on the AstroTurf, it skipped all the way to the wall because Lou Brock and Kurt Flood had lost a step by that time. It goes all the way to the wall. I'm standing at third with a triple. Okay. Now, by the time I came up again, Gibson was out and Joe Horner, a left-hander, was pitching. And I hit a pop-up to shortstop uh, off Horner. Fast forward a few months. There's an off-season banquet in St. Louis. I'm the MC. Gibson is there. I see him at the cocktail party. I walk up, big smile. Hey, Bob, how you doing? And he goes, you little so-and-so. If you'd come <laughs> up again, you were going on your ass. And he was only half kidding. Okay. And so now fast forward many years, Bob and I were good friends. And my wife and I were at his house in Omaha with Bob and, we're his, and his wife, right Wendy. And Bob was a great chef, like a gourmet chef. He loved to entertain people. And somehow the conversation gets around to this lucky triple. And I said, ah, it's just a meatball, batting practice fastball. And he goes, no, slider, thigh high. You hit the crap out of it. This guy is such a competitor. He remembers not when he threw Mickey Mantle in the World Series. He remembers what he threw me <laughs> in a fantasy game. That's amazing. That's Pitchers amazing. never forget. Pitchers Ever. never forget. They don't forget. Yeah, yep. you're right. Well, well, hey, thanks again, Bob, so much. I mean, and and for stories like that, I mean, the, that's I mean, that's amazing. You're only going to get that here on Hollywood Swinging. Thank I, you so much. I enjoyed much. it very much. I hope I didn't uh, overstay my welcome. Not at Absolutely all. Absolutely not. not. At all. Absolutely not, Bob. We are so appreciative. I mean, legendary broadcast career. You know what? Iconic broadcast career. You scored a a basket on Magic Johnson. You tripled I off did. of Bob Gibson. <laughs> Two legendary athletes. Again, Bob, we thank you for your time. And again, fans, we're so appreciative that you tuned in for legendary, iconic broadcaster and athlete, Bob Costas, <laughs> Stephen Bishop. This is Jerry Hairston Jr. for Hollywood Swinging. Ladies and gentlemen, you may have seen me drinking from the now famous White Yeti cup throughout the interview with Mr. Costas, and you may be wondering, what is he drinking in that White Yeti cup? Well, what I've been drinking has been supplied by today's sponsor, Futures Hero Antioxidant Coffee. Futures Hero is not just a great tasting coffee, which it is, but it's also roasted with the patented healthy roast technology, which retains 75% of the naturally occurring antioxidants from the green coffee bean. 75%, Jerry, that's a lot of antioxidants. Futures Hero is the healthy roast that's good for you.